0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is science and consciousness. My guest is Eddie Billamoria, who is a consultant engineer, who has been a project manager and head of design for major projects, such as the channel tunnel, sometimes known as the channel and London underground systems. He has also worked in environmental engineering and management for several Royal Navy projects, including the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier, and the river-class offshore patrol vessels. He is chairman of the Theosophical World Trust for Education and Research and a trustee of the Scientific and Medical Network. He is author of many scientific papers and books, including Mirages in Western Science, resolved by Occult Science, The Snake and the Rope, and his latest four-volume work, Unfolding Consciousness – Exploring the Living Universe and Intelligent Powers in Nature and Humans. Today we'll be exploring his first volume, A Panoramic Survey – Science Contrasted with the Perennial Philosophy on Consciousness in Man. Eddie is located in Godalming, which is south of London, England. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Eddie. It is such a joy to have you with us today.
0: Thank you so much, Emmy. It's my pleasure and equal joy and delight to be conversing with you. And I had a quick look at the book you kindly sent me. And I think the word intuitive development is so important now for us to soak into our consciousness. We have a lot of intellect that we must now have intuition.
1: Thank you for highlighting intuition right out the gate here, Eddie. How can consciousness and intuition impact science?
0: That's a huge question, Emmy, but I would say it would impact science in this sense that science would not be trammelled and stuck in a materialistic groove. Because working through intellect it is imprisoned by the intellectual processes. And um, no one put it more eloquently in 1943, <laughs> during the darkest days of World War Two, by Albert Einstein to talk uh, to a Jewish seminary in in the United States. Of course he fled to the United States and he said that we celebrate man's intellectual achievement and of course the celebration and the pride is best expressed by those who strive the least but he says we should be careful not to make the intellect our goal the intellect has powerful muscles i quote but it has no personality so it has given us the tools. And then Einstein talks about this, what he calls, I quote, fatal blindness of those he refers to as the priests, the intellectual priests. What's he hinting at that we have to go beyond intellect? For goodness sake, he's not saying get rid of intellect. Intellect is a stepping stone. It's with the mind, concept with the mind, but with percept through the mind we touch direct knowing which is intuition and intuition is the hard won child of intellect let's make no bones about that you don't just sit under a tree and get intuition unless you're not even the lord buddha he sat for a long time under the buddhi tree (laughs) we have to realize that uh, only intuition will guide science to a higher viewpoint
1: For those listening to our conversation, we're talking about science and consciousness, but what we're talking about really can touch everyone's life.
0: Yes, indeed. It can touch everyone because science is not something that's limited to scientists. Science, unfortunately, we've lost the meaning of the word. Science just comes from the Latin schiere, to know, to explore. Therefore, it means to ask questions and to make it possible for people to ask questions without having them executed, if you're not asking the question that the intellectual priests want to hear. And if I may just lead on, this is exactly what the wonderful Scientific and Medical Network is aiming towards. So everyone can adopt a scientific approach which doesn't mean being stuck to mainstream science. A scientific approach means you look at something, you maybe form a hypothesis, you explore, you ask questions, you test, and then you look further, and you doubt. You don't just accept anything. You doubt as well. That's all part of the scientific approach. Yeah. It's not limited just to mainstream science. (laughs) So there is a science of yoga. There is a science of love. There is a science of everything.
1: There are many ways of knowing.
0: There are indeed, and the heart is sadly neglected. And th- this is why it, it scattered throughout the volumes. I've always brought in the insights from art, from music and from poetry. I was absolutely delighted to hear, a couple of months ago, uh, in a programme on Beethoven, uh, an interview with Julian Allwood, who's Professor of Material Science at Cambridge, where he said it is so wrong to think that the scientific approach is the only way, the best way. He mentioned poetry. Poets are the legislators of humanity quoting from Keats. In other words, the poet has intuitively seen in his mind's eye what the future scientists and others will discover in the fullness of time. Mm. So there are many ways, art, poetry, science, music, service, philanthropy, they're all ways to knowing. And they're not in watertight compartments. They all come together.
1: The example you give of poetry, one can access images and sentiments that can really not be described in any other way.
0: Indeed. Other than through imagery, through allegory, and through beautiful poetry. One uh, um, lovely saying that just comes to mind now John Keats, talking about the sensitivity of the human being. Now, we want to discover things and find things out. But if we shut our eyes, we don't see. Sensitivity is something very important. And Keats said that the the tree that brings some people to tears is just an object that stands in your way to others, you know, it's a kick it out of the way, it's in my way. Other people will be reduced to tears by seeing the beauty of the tree. So when we talk of science, the sensitivity of the scientist is of supreme importance.
1: The human is its own instrument.
0: The human being is a divine instrument. You're absolutely right, Emmy. You're absolutely right, yeah. And if the strings are tuned and just sufficiently taut, then those strings will pick up the subtlest quiver than if the strings are loose and jangled.
1: You mention Einstein, and he himself had a copy of A Secret Doctrine. And it sounds like The Secret Doctrine was talking about atoms before he even researched it himself.
0: Yes, it was, yeah. The Secret doc. it's the chapter on gods, monads, and atoms, a tremendous chapter. And what really struck Einstein <clears throat> was the section where it said that the atoms are divisible in an age when materialistic science regarded atoms, to put it crudely, as billiard balls, you know, the atom is the ultimate particle, you can't split it. And he saw the section that said the atom is divisible into other particles. And then Einstein goes on to say that if those particles display elasticity and divisibility, there is more divisibility and so you can go on ad infinitum so that ultimately, and this is the point, we reach a stage where the whole notion of objective matter, objective matter is a nonsense because what we're doing is we, we're reducing so-called matter into a system of forces. What is wonderful, the great scientists have said the same thing in their own words. Einstein said that. Max Planck, the great founder of uh, quantum physics in 1900, he said that, I quote almost, paraphrase, he said, as the most hard-headed man of science, Max Planck says, I can tell you there's no such thing as matter. Ultimately, all matter is a system of forces. Mm-hmm. Behind that, he goes on to say, we have to assume an intelligence, a mind. Arthur Eddington said the same thing. the The so-called stuff of the universe is mind stuff. And by stuff, I don't mean physical matter. I mean mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The tragedy is, I Emmy, mean, the greatest of scientists have said this, but mainstream science prefers to ignore it. That's never been any different. In any age, you have the clash between those who want to hang on to status quo in the church, in religion, in philosophy, and those who want to move it on. And the hangers-on have their uses, of, of course. <laughs>
1: If the universe is mind stuff, then it holds that you're saying that consciousness is fundamental and that really everything we experience is created out of consciousness?
0: Right. I wouldn't say created out of, but is an expression of. That consciousness does not express in matter, it expresses as matter so crude example h2o expresses as ice you can touch it as water yes you can touch it steam superheated steam you can't see it it's still h2o so in this sense consciousness is the very ground of our being it is the primary element and as schrodinger said You cannot divide it. It is undivided because it's the ultimate element. And you can't define consciousness because, you know, that's the natural question, how do you define it? When you define something, you always have to bring in something else. So typically, if you define what we were taught first thing physics in school, distance (laughs) equals speed times time. That's what distance is. So you're always bringing in at least two other quantities, what is speed? You have to define it in terms of distance and time. What is time? You have to define it. You can't define consciousness. But if you now take a journey, Emmy, from where you are in Minnesota, yes? Yes. If you take a journey to, from Minnesota to Godalming, where I am now in England, can you define the journey? No. You can describe the journey. How do you define a journey? You describe it. But even more than describing it, you experience. And the description is only the verbal concept of the experience. So consciousness is a journey we experience. And words to conceptualize are very limited. That's why. The great poets have put it in their beautiful poetry. The other point, just to close this one out, well, it's never ending, of course, but just now. um, Here is a, a beautiful paperweight I got from Australia, if you can see it. It's an object. You can put an object in a box. You can't put a phenomenon in a box. A rainbow is a phenomenon. It's not an object. It's a phenomenon created by the laws of light and the internal neurological processes in the eyes. If I go up uh, in a hot air balloon, well, I would <laughs> disintegrate the balloon with hot air. But anyway, if I touch a rainbow, I'm not touching a rainbow. I'm touching water droplets. You can't put a rainbow in a box so you can't put consciousness in a box but we can experience it in terms of all the qualities of con- uh, that we um, associate with consciousness awareness um, generosity kindness the other side of it of course cruelty selfishness all the qualities all the various spectrum colors of consciousness
1: why do you think there are scientists who are so resistant to these concepts? <laughs> Amy,
0: I've always asked myself, why does prejudice stick? I would really say this to you, that if you want the finest glue in the world, I don't know in, in America, if you have a glue called araldite, you know, you have a hardener and a thing. Anyway, it's the strongest, well, it's a strong resin glue. Concrete. There is a glue even harder than concrete, and that's known as prejudice. <laughs> it's incredible how prejudice sticks. Scient- why? Now, what, the many reasons, the historical reasons for materialism. In the 19th century, there was an explosion in scientific uh, discovery, wonderful, scientific development then became a scientific ideology, or rather not scientific, a materialistic material development and technology, then morphed into an ideology of materialism. So because of the spectacular success of materialism, and I'm not knocking materialism, no one in their right frame of mind should, but because of that spectacular success, That's the only way. And all other um, questions and discoveries are so secondary and pseudo and all the rest of it. The problem is not asking the right questions, if I can just develop that, why scientists are so resistant. I would encourage them to ask the right questions Every day, including today, I go running around my local lake. It's not my lake, uh, unfortunately. It's a beautiful fishing lake, and there's a beautiful playground. And I love to watch the little children on the slide and the um, zip line. Now, just assume that assume a child comes down the slide and too fast and knocks its tooth out. Perfectly imaginable. So you call the slide manufacturer because the slide was at too steep an angle. So the child came down far. So his job is just a mass coming down a slide. The mass can be a child. It can be a stone. It can be a brick. All you're doing is translating potential energy from a height to kinetic energy coming down. And that's the physics problem. His question is, what's the height? what's the angle that's about it now suppose the child is taken by mother to a dentist tooth was knocked out now the dentist is going to look at the tooth as an object obviously the child's not an object but his job as a dentist is to look at the tooth as an object the slide manufacturer is very interested in the weight of the child coming down you know if it's 100 pounds or 35 pounds it's a big difference to the design of the slide the dentist is not interested in the weight of the child his job is to deal with the teeth if he asks the child what's your weight he's asking the wrong question then if that child grows up and uh, as a young adult has uh, nightmares about her Childhood experience it goes to the psychiatrist. Now, is the psychiatrist going to say, What's your weight? Were you three stone when you came down the slide? No. The psychiatrist is not interested in the tooth as an object, the child as an object. The psychiatrist is interested in the inner being, in the inner soul nature. So, if the psychiatrist says, Well, you know, what's your weight? he's asking the wrong questions. So science needs to ask the right questions. When it talks about paranormal and psi in terms of physics, it's asking the wrong questions. And that's why there's so much confusion.
1: You suggest in your first volume that scientists should know themselves, right? Just like the ancient philosophers have suggested. And do you think that Well, first, why do you think it's so important for scientists to know themselves?
0: Because you are part of the mystery you are trying to investigate. As the great Max Planck said, you cannot say, I'm here. I'm detached from what I'm trying to investigate. I am part of the mystery. So great scientists have realized this. And this is the tremendous contribution, I mean tremendous, of quantum physics. Sadly, it has not pervaded the corpus of mainstream science. Quantum physics has shown uh, in outline that the observer and the observed are part of one organic unity. John Wheeler at Princeton University says, words to the effect Gone are the days when the scientist can observe what he is investigating behind a thick glass wall. Participation is the new word. So as an example, if I want to know know my neighbour, if I drag him in, um, kill him of course, um, (laughs) put him on a weighing scale, I find, find out his weight, his chemical constitution, his height, I only know his body, his dead body. How do I know him? I interact with him. I call him in for tea, I talk with him, I participate. So participating in nature's processes is the is the way, and that is something that the great Newton, Einstein, the great scientists have intuitively done but not spoken about or written about because it came so naturally to them. When Barbara McClintock got the Nobel Prize uh, for I I think molecular biology, she she actually said she became that which she was investigating. She and her investigation were one. So you are one Mm -hmm. with your subject.
1: Yes, and perhaps Some scientists are more aware of that than others.
0: Yes, and the ones who are more aware of it are those who have put their ego aside. When your ego comes in, you're thinking, peer pressure, is this um, respectable? Will I get it published? What will the Nobel Committee say? You have to be fearless.
1: Yeah, and furthermore, the... uh, investigators' consciousness can impact the methodology and the outcomes of the study.
0: Absolutely. Because there is this uh, great difference that the the scientist researches, the spiritual seeker searches. There is nothing to research. It's all there. But you have to seek it out. You have to search it out. So whether the scientist is a kindly, generous human being, or whether he's a selfish, horrible man, it has no bearing on what he's researching. So if he writes a paper on anything, whatever, magnetism, electricity, the same paper written by a horrible man or a kind man, it's the same. But if you dare to call yourself a seeker, spiritual seeker, you must be transformed In your search. You can't be a horrible person and say, I'm going to discover (laughs) the realms of spirit. So there is that difference that the scientist researches and his character is irrelevant. The spiritual seeker searches and he must be transformed in his search. But of course, the great scientists were transformed in their search towards greater humility. And Einstein's lovely saying, lovely saying that um, in all those years and years, I've realized, paraphrasing, that what we know from science about life and everything is primitive, but yet it's the most precious thing we have at the moment clearly saying there's so much more.
1: How are the laws of nature intelligent?
0: Yeah, yeah, but they're anything but blind and mechanical. One expression of intelligence is, is the movement towards every creature to realize its ultimate purpose, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that evolution is anything but blind it is purposeful and goal orientated intelligence in, in in the sense of um, alluding to or pointing towards a, a, a vast intelligence, uh, as Schiller you know who owed to joy Beethoven Schiller said the universe is a thought of deity, and that Thought has overspilled into actuality. So the thought of deity has got to be intelligent <laughs> at the very source and fountainhead. And we are an expression of that huge, tremendous intelligence.
1: There might be some people listening now thinking to themselves, well, I just experience a physical world how is this physical world intelligent what might you say to them
0: I would say there's every sign of intelligence look at the oak tree in your garden if you have one look at the whole of nature look at the seasons look at and your own body how um, the uh, immune system and all the other forces in the body direct one towards, well, healing, obviously, uh, hopefully, not uh, um, being ravaged by a disease. But the physical world is very much the expression of intelligence. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> very true. How can the perennial philosophy complement science?
0: Right, it complements science in many wonderful ways. Firstly, by showing how the higher wisdom and the mystery teachings resolve, not solve, resolve many problems in science concerning things like evolution, the nature of matter and consciousness. And the wonderful thing about the perennial philosophy, it is absolutely It speaks with one voice. There is no contradiction. So all the great sages have, so to speak, dipped their pens into the same inkwell of consciousness or inkwell of wisdom, let's call it that. And they've written with their own handwriting, but the handwriting is different, but the ink is one. And that ink tells us that unlike mainstream science that will insist in saying that physical matter is the primary and all life and intelligence is the product of matter. The perennial philosophy from any age in any culture will show and demonstrate that actually what is primary is consciousness and matter is really the involution, the coming down of consciousness in various states of itself until it touches uh, physicality. Artificial intelligence, um, dare I say, it's the most insidious thing around. It is something that even uh, Stephen Hawking pointed out. Well, look, anything can be used and abused. Mm -hmm. I attended a conference on um, corneal um, surgery uh, a couple of months ago and artificial intelligence is used in a wonderful way because if you take hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the cornea during various stages of uh, procedures you can't have someone looking at a thousand photographs you know it's going to take a year so artificial intelligence is wonderful it's sifting through all the various photographs and all the various data to come up with something that is meaningful. But when artificial intelligence is used, obviously for nefarious purposes uh, and uh, for warfare and um, as a substitute for human intelligence, uh, I see that is incredibly insidious. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it's very, it is always artificial. When artificial intelligence can write one bar of Schubert, that can reduce one to tears, then I'll have faith in it. (laughs) Just one bar. (laughs) Schrodinger himself said that science, you know, he said, I'm very uh, astonished the scientific picture is very deficient. It puts everything in a wonderful order and classifies things, but it's ghastly silent about all everything that's near and dear to us. We know how the waves of compression and rarefaction strike our ear drums and then tears flow from the eyes. But why? Not how, but why? An old song can reduce us to tears science is completely silent about. And when artificial intelligence can write a song that can reduce us to tears without the programmer putting in Schubert or Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin or Liszt, then... I will have faith in artificial intelligence. It is highly artificial. Keep away from it.
1: (laughs) Many people are hopeful that artificial intelligence and technology advancements will save us from many of the problems we're currently experiencing. I'm
0: trying to be very polite. Artificial intelligence and technology Who's behind the technology? Who is running the artificial intelligence? The One of the great founders of the Scientific Medical Network, which is international, Sir Kelvin Spencer, who was the chief scientist at the Ministry of Power in England, he put it so beautifully that, quoting um, Sir Arthur Eddington, the great scientist, that measurement has become the measure of all. What about love? What about mercy? What about pity? These are excluded, he said, from the scientific prison. So just technology? Excuse me. Far from it. Paul Brunton, the great sage, put it wonderfully physical science used wisely will result in the physical release of man used unwisely will result in his downfall look at what's happening to the environment as one example i think it is incredibly naive to think that technology on its own on its own will rescue you
1: well and i think that it's possible that some of those people who are thinking that are, are certainly being hopeful but also it takes effort and a bit of discipline to know thyself
0: it is the ultimate search and just talking of technology you know one always has to balance it the wonderful uses um i think in volume 3 i set the example of a young man who lost both arms in an electrical accident as a youth And many, many years later, um, John Hopkins University developed a transducer linked to a computer and all such that artificial limbs, he can use his arms. Wonderful. Uh, That, uh, you know, it's always the human being behind the technology.
1: We need to bring love and wisdom with our creations.
0: That comes first. Mm And talking of love and wisdom, um, I don't need to tell you there's no shortage of uh, groups uh, and gurus and cults all over the world, in America, of course, as well, everywhere, showing, giving you or promising you the ultimate utopia, follow me and do this and the rest of it. The best advice, insofar as I can advise anyone, is anyone or any group that does not have love and wisdom at its heart run away. Mm. Everything comes from love and wisdom. Love and wisdom are two sides of one coin. And you can include intelligence in that as well. You cannot be intelligent without wisdom. You can't be loving without intelligence and wisdom. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And love may be a supreme intelligence. It is.
0: Yeah, Dante said it is the love that moves the stars in their orbit, or the sun round the uh, sorry the the um, the planets round the sun. It is love that moves the stars in their orbit. Yes, and gravity, if you like, is the physical expression of the law of love, bringing together.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Beautiful. So love is not sentimental at all. Uh, It's terribly confused with uh, sort of sensuality and all of that. It is an impersonal and personal, of course. It is the supreme force.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: In the Upanishads, um, the word is Ananda, bliss, delight. The universe was created by delight for delight.
1: Beautiful. Can you share a little bit more about the perennial philosophy and how it has driven your practice as an engineer and a scientist?
0: You're not the only one who has asked me that, which is a perfectly understandable question because, again, engineer scientist is not in a box away from the rest of life. The laws of science, engineering is the application of science, of course, Uh, I see the laws of science as really an expression of the laws of the universe. So there are physical laws and the laws behind the physical. Now, if I can just uh, bring in the word esoteric. The esoteric really means looking at the realities behind appearances. So Einstein said, that we have to distinguish between what is true and what is really true. So something that deals with appearances may be true, but something that deals with realities behind appearances is really true. And then he said the really true is only known to the universal observer, but to get back to your question, the esoteric sciences and the hermetic uh, sciences deal with the invisible influences which are the noumena behind the phenomena and the noumena means to breathe out the causes the invisible causes and influences behind the external phenomena breathing out and i realize this when I was um, writing my PhD as though I didn't have enough work to do (laughs) on um, the um, cooling problems of the RB211 jet engine, Uh, I was studying astrology quite deeply and astrology is a sacred, wonderful science. People talk rubbish about it and I I saw you have a chapter on astrology and intuitive development in your book and I realized then that there are subjective influences that science cannot talk about so what science and engineering my work in science and engineering has done is provided the critical thinking the organization and the marshaling of thought which is necessary in dealing with subjects that are far subtler and can easily spin out of control i see no dichotomy between science and engineering, and uh, consciousness, and subtler realms.
1: How would you describe the perennial philosophy?
0: The best uh, description is uh, given by Albert Schweitzer, who likened perennialism to a tree that always produces the same fruit but never the same kind of fruit. So if you have an apple tree in your garden, it always produces apples, but no apple is the same as the other apple, meaning that the central wisdom, the perennial philosophy, has always got to be updated in terms of the age we are living in and with full cognizance and recognition of the scientific developments that are taking place to corroborate the um, the wisdom, Another way of looking at perennialism is like an algebraic formula. An algebraic formula is a statement of generalities. You can have, as I said earlier, a distance equals speed times time. It applies on the Moon, on Mars or Venus, on Earth's. Multiply speed and time, you get distance, wherever you are. So it's a statement of generalities. Another way of looking at and in fact, um, Blavatsky in the Secret Doctrine refers to the uh, Perennial Philosophy as an algebraic statement of universals. Another way of looking at it is the lovely word in Sanskrit, sutratma. And sutratma means the sacred thread, the sacred thread that binds. So now you're not wearing a necklace. If you were, I usually do, but I'm not <laughs> <would> today. <laughs> yeah, you did last time. You did, Emmy. Yeah, um, uh, the, the 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 thread binds all the beads together. So science, religion, philosophy are regarded as separate things. They're not. They're bound together by this sacred thread. That's another way of looking at the perennial philosophy. Another way of looking at it is. It provides a, a mental culture and a way of life so that you can deal with, well, not just every emergency, but sensible emergencies, if I can put it that way. So an expert motorist can't possibly know every pothole, every traffic light, every roadblock on his journey, but by virtue of his driving skills, yeah, he can negotiate his way. So, The perennial philosophy is in that sense, it provides you with those driving skills, not just for your car, but your driving life, your journey through life. Yeah. But the best uh, um, one is Albert Schweitzer, who said there are three things that are important for progress. Progress in material development, not knocking that, in social cohesion, but most importantly, in spiritual awareness and evolution.
1: What is the secret doctrine that Einstein had a copy of?
0: That is the phenomenal magnum opus written by Helen Bolvatsky, who was one of the principal founders of the um, Theosophical Society. The secret doctrine is really um, a comprehensive account of the esoteric wisdom of all ages that have been put into a form that is accessible to modern man. So it talks about, the. uh, it's in two volumes, cosmogenesis, anthropogenesis, the coming into being of the universe, the coming into being of man. And uh, a huge section on that is um, on science, on esoteric science, on hermetic science, and there's another word for that as well, which I won't use, because um, I'll have to explain it. So it is showing that if we take the wisdom and culture of all the great races, nations, over the centuries, historical and prehistorical, we can trace it back to a body of wisdom. So, one of the wonderful sayings behind that impulse, uh, by a great sage, uh, he he put it this way beautifully: that between between degrading religious superstition and even more brutal scientific materialism the white dove of truth has hardly room where to place her weary and unwelcome foot so the secret doctrine shows where the white dove of truth may place her weary and unwelcome foot strong between brutal materialism and religious superstition there is something more and it's secret only in the sense that it's not secretive what is sacred has got to be secret our private lives are secret well obviously because uh, anything that is sacred is private and secret you know we don't hang it out on a washing night so it's secret in that sense and it's also secret because the greatest care has got to be taken not to cast pearls before swine, if I can put it that way. And what is secret and sacred is the most easily blunted and abused. Mm-hmm. It's a doctrine of all ages, by the way. It's not Gupta Vidya is the uh, uh, Sanskrit term. The hidden wisdom, the ancient wisdom, the eternal wisdom, the secret doctrine are all similar terms. mm
1: mm-hmm how do you feel it can guide science? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I feel like you might have a little more to say.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah, it can certainly guide science by pointing to some of the presuppositions in science, and pointing to the origin of science itself. And one of the most significant passages there, one of many, is the, is the chapter on Sir Isaac Newton, where she points out, with evidence, that everything is done with evidence, the secret doctrine has over 10,000 references, that the the common idea that Newton preached a mechanical universe is nonsense. This was a later aberration of the post-Newtonian scientists who were so taken up by Newton, that Newton was one of the most deeply religious uh, men, which is now becoming to know well-known, And um, Newton revered the universe and wrote in glowing terms about divinity. So it it helps science in resolving some of the things they keep arguing about, the main one being the primacy of matter. Mm -hmm. And the other one is evolution, of course.
1: So was it Newton who had more than 70% of his books were on occult in his library?
0: Well, yes, you're absolutely right. His library contained 1,752 books, and they were huge volumes, not penguins. And r- around 30%, 28 30% were, well, it was called natural philosophy in his, his day, not physics, natural philosophy, mathematics. The rest were mainly alchemy, Theology and a tremendous amount on all the other things he uh, researched geology, education, literature. but the main one was theology and alchemy. The alchemy is the soul, the soul of chemistry, so to speak, and in alchemy it, it is the transmutation uh, I spoke about the scientist who must transmute along with what he is uh, researching. So the best way I can uh, describe alchemy in modern personal terms is, if a person, as a result of uh, any experience or an inner awakening, really becomes an unselfish philanthropic person, having been a selfish, self-centered person, that is an alchemical transmutation of lead into gold. Lead and gold are just allegorical so it's not a transformation you you transform at the same level it's a transmutation and people who've had the real near-death experience have had this transmutational experience and talking of the perennial philosophy the mystery teachings in the mystery schools in all the various world centers the teachings are aimed at transmuting the base nature into the higher nature. But there is also terrestrial alchemy and, you know, there is an interesting account of um, in Newton's writings, where he was experimenting with um, a primum ends, and the primum ends means the elixir of life. And uh, you can see this, actually, Um, it, it was in the British Museum, now the British Library. It's written that this primum ends, the elixir of life, was administered to a lady of 70, which started her periods. So I would call it alchemical HRT, so to speak, but alchemy is not fooling around and Newton openly said it it is this vulgar idea that you're trying to change it into gold is just a vulgar idea. It is the inner transmutation it's understanding nature's secret processes nature's secret fire
1: I think that word nature mm. is a great word to bring back into the sciences because it seems to open us up to more possibilities than just looking at something as quote physical or materialistic
0: yes nature as a living organic being and newton put it so wonderfully that this earth he said i mean fancy calling uh, saying he he talked about a mechanical universe newton said this earth is like a great animal Animals spelt with two L's in his time. (laughs) Breathing out uh, exhalations and ingesting again, you know, and he carries on in that way. That's in his letter to Henry Oldenburg, the secretary of the Royal Society. So uh, this is um, uh, his way of talking about the Gaia principle. Nature is an organic being. It has its life. It has its cycles. It's not an object to be raped and plundered.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And we are part of nature, and the sooner we realize that, the better.
1: Yes, and we are also animals. We think we're separate from animals.
0: (laughs) We are that. We have that aspect, most certainly, yes, yes. But not only.
1: In what ways do you think that science could benefit from what you're sharing in your truly magnum opus, volume of works?
0: Well, my first book was really called Problems in Science, resolved by uh, Occult Science, to show how science could benefit some of these. It's not just a a theoretical exercise in um, trying to solve problems. It could benefit... The first thing that comes to mind is that the Templeton Foundation have uh, are awarding a twenty million dollar prize on two cleverly designed experiments to find out how the brain generates consciousness so if science understood that we don 't think with our brains we think through our brains, that twenty million would be far better spent um, in better ways then this frenetic search for extraterrestrial life. Once science understands that everything is life, in different stages of being and becoming. As Rumi put it beautifully, the the great Sufi, that I slept in the stone, I awoke in the vegetable, I dreamt in the animal and I work in the man. In other words, e- evolution is a process of consciousness seeking ever more refined and complex uh, a matter to express itself. So instead of looking for extraterrestrial life, science would say there is nothing but life. And it is incredibly arrogant to think that the only life we call life is what we can see with our highly limited senses so nasa nasa's definition of life and i've put that at the front of volume three uh, nasa's definition is a life that conforms to the chemical periodic table subject to darwinian evolution and only the life we know earthly life The esoteric science says we have no right to say that only what we can perceive with our limited physical senses is all there is to life. And the esoteric science is far more interested in the universals behind the particulars. So, you know, sending probes to whatever to seek life out, that money could be much better spent by understanding what life is not only on Earth, but everywhere. And by respecting all life, well, need I hardly say the benefits of respect would be. Jeff Bezos' great idea, as a few months, um, his his idea is to mine, because we made a mess of our Earth, to mine the other planets and get all their stuff out And it's all right to create debris and junk on someone else's planet, but, you know, we're down here now. So this arrogant, ugly attitude to life with more respect for life, need I hardly say how science would benefit, and humanity, and humanity, because everyone listens to Bezos and jots their jaws, Eh, you know. Great, well, leave Amazon apart. His ideas of plundering other planets because they're just dead objects, as far as he's concerned.
1: Right. And we need people to have an adventurous spirit to seek without, but we also need to seek within.
0: Yes. The outer journey into outer space is important because ultimately, the ultimate journey is the inner journey into inner space into the realm of mind and consciousness, yes.
1: Mysticism represents or can represent that state of transformation or transmutation to that state of a higher consciousness or higher state of being.
0: The The practicing mystic would experience that, yes. But um, associated with that, I would say mysticism is a universal feeling of union with nature and especially the subtler and delicate aspects of nature to use a, a musical analogy i think analogies always help um, a, a mystic in terms of this analogy is someone who has a great love for music all music not just sectarian approach all music Well, I mean, within limits, of course, Eastern music, Western music. But such a person may not be just happy with a love for music. Such a person may want to know the laws of music, more about the composition, the composers, the periods, the instruments. So then we bring in esotericism, wanting to know the laws behind. But then the uh, such a person may know the laws behind music but he may also want to be a practicing musician and then we have to bring in the word the occultist so the occult the difference between occult science and esoteric science is the difference between meaning and function so the occultist not is not only aware of the subtle and invisible forces but can Manipulate them and control them, which is why it is so important for the character of the individual to be of the most utmost purity, because when you're dealing with subtle forces, the abuse can result in disaster. So this word occult, which I was resisting from using all along (laughs) since we've come to it.
1: It's a great word.
0: It is. I mean, it just means hidden. And the origin of the word is occultus in Latin, meaning concealed. And the word concealed, the origin of the word is occult. It is really understanding the invisible influences and being able to handle them Mm. wisely.
1: You yourself play the piano and give concerts.
0: (laughs) Yes, I do. The the last time I was playing was at a soiree of the Chopin Society last Sunday. I was only playing a little piece then. But uh, I'm I'm playing again, I think on the 2nd of July and after that. Yes, music has been an absolutely central part of my life. Because it has shown me, well, how can I put it, the language of the divine? And Beethoven put it so beautifully that music provides the link between the world of spirit and the sensual world. Mm. Music also is unspoken thought, that which cannot be put in words, but it is unexpressed in words thought. But the analogy of the orchestra, if I can just develop this theme, the orchestra is a wonderful metaphor, not an imaginary metaphor, for how science, religion, philosophy could all come together. Now, why do we fight? In an orchestra, the violinist doesn't fight with the trumpeter because they both are playing the same music, different scores, one for the trumpet, one for the violin but they don't bang each other's heads. Why? Because they experience the music. But if I described the music, if someone described the music, they wouldn't experience the music. They wouldn't. They'd have a mental concept. And then fights come when we have mental concepts. All the instruments realize that we are differently together. We're playing. The same music, the same conductor, the same composer, the same divine source. So using the orchestra to talk about why religions fight, those who really experience or touch some aspect of divinity don't fight about it, they share their experience. But if you conceptualize it and turn it into a dogmatic theology, then you will fight about it. And science, as scientism, is almost a dogmatic theology. Scientism, not science of course, scientism is the ideology that anything that can't be physically expressed in terms, and in materialistic terms, is not science and cut out all the dissenters. Yeah. So we've gone from orchestras to science to materialism, but it's all part of the same uh, thought process.
1: What pieces are currently moving you the most and connecting you the most deeply with your nature?
0: In music, you mean? Yes. I did send you a picture of my piano, didn't I? Behind, I've got the picture of the five saints (laughs) Beethoven, Mozart, Schubert, Chopin, Liszt and Mozart, obviously Brahms and Schumann and Verdi and all the others, but I would say I'm always with some of the pieces of Chopin, with Mozart, with Beethoven, with Schubert. At the moment, uh, I'm learning uh, a couple of uh, Brahms intermezzi. I recently learned the Chopin fantasy in F minor and the G minor ballad, one of the most wonderful pieces. In terms of uh, chamber music, there is no finer um, um, demonstration of the death process of the transition process than Schubert's tremendous C major quintet uh music alludes to everything in life and great literature and poetry as well emmy but music is 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 so subtle
1: music can envelop us and and move us in very deep ways if we enjoy the piece right
0: <laughs> yes indeed
1: some of the scientists who are more materialistic or who feel that the world is just physical, it seems as though they've divided themselves and are really just up in the head and not really feeling into all of themselves. And I can't say, you know, for certain with all of these scientists, but I know that when people tend to do that, there's often an element of fear of vulnerability and having difficulty to even connect with maybe their heart because they have a wound in their heart, possibly.
0: That is well put, a wounded heart, most certainly. Fear is a huge element of that, fear of looking stupid. So a lot of scientists are closeted scientists. There are one kind of scientists at work in the laboratory, very much another kind of human being, not scientists, with their families and at the weekend. So it is very important to get scientists not to feel ashamed, to feel comfortable with talking about their inner experiences. And this is exactly why the Scientific and Medical Network is such a wonderful, superb organization, because it was founded in 1973. By um, well, George Blayco, uh, the the founder, but Sir Kelvin Spencer, the Ministry uh, Ministry of Power, and Sir uh, and Patrick Shackleton, the Dean of uh, Medical Science at Southampton, to provide a safe forum, a safe forum, where not only scientists but scientists as well could prov- talk about their inner experiences in a safe space. Because in 1973, consciousness was not a word even that was mentioned. Uh, it's it's a taboo word. Now it's a big word, of course. So things are slightly improving. So uh, the, there are more and more scientists who are coming out of their closeted, uh, whatever you like to call it, out of their closet, and talking about the inexperience but but sadly in academia at least in england america is far more enlightened in england it is still the ontology is very materialistic in academia consciousness studies is frowned upon it has to be matter based so another thing is the galileo commission which is a a wonderful um satellite, if you like, of the scientific medical network. The picture in front is a telescope. And why Galileo? Because Galileo invited his professors to look through the telescope rather than conceptualizing. He said, instead of just talking your theory, have a look. And when you look, what you see is not what you're talking about. So we are inviting scientists to look through the telescope, to look at what we are presenting, to look at what enlightened science is presenting, and therefore to modify and um, change their rather stuck dogmatic views on matter and consciousness.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a term that I think is pretty key, and that's inner experience. And it sounds like you're encouraging people to listen to that, and also to their intuition, which many great scientists have done.
0: Intuition is tuition from within, isn't it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, um,
0: not many great, all the great scientists have done. And I distinguish heavily between the great and the famous. The famous are, of course, well known. But the great ones are the humble ones, and many are not well known they work quietly without wanting any notoriety or or fame or fortune or prizes because they're working with a love for their subject and a love of discovery and when they become famous the greatness drops off
1: (laughs) why do you think that is
0: oh It takes a rare individual to retain their humility when everyone's uh, bowing at your feet. Yeah. I think Einstein said, actually, um, I've quoted it in one of the volumes, that um, as I become famous, I've become more stupid. (laughs) But one has to take this with some humor, obviously, with some humor. Yeah.
1: When people are more in love with what they're doing and being, they're more in the flow, and then they can access and they're really one with their intuition.
0: Yes, in love with what they're doing is absolutely right, whatever it may be.
1: And then as you say, they can be one with it and they can communicate more effortlessly with it and it with them.
0: And what science does is, once you have an intuition, that's all very well, but how are you going to tell your brothers and sisters and and the rest of the world? For that, you have to have the tools and techniques. So using Newton as an example, his intuition was tremendous and phenomenal, but he developed the mathematics and the experimental techniques to earth his intuitions intuition on its own must be it it can't be of any use other than to you unless you earth it you can have you may have a new different example a great tune but it's only your tune how are you going to earth it you got to know the laws of composition you got to know your instrument but the instrument doesn't play the tune the instrument is only the instrument
1: right So a scientist needs to act on their intuition.
0: Act on their intuition using the tools and techniques and methods of science.
1: You mentioned the Scientific and Medical Network. Can you share a little bit more about that organization?
0: Yeah, Yeah, as as I say, it was founded in in 1973 for this purpose when it was realized that um, many scientists, many people wanted to share their experiences and needed a safe space to do so. Um, the founder, George Blaker, was a senior civil servant uh, in India and also um, uh, a member of the Theosophical Society. And I like to think that this is a beautiful transference of the ideas that were central to the Theosophical Society uh, put it in, into a more modern guise, just a little story about George Blaker in India. He was once walking up a steep hill, and a car um drove past and stopped and um offered him a lift and sitting next to George Blaker in the car was a Indian man, and he tried to make conversation with him, and he very politely didn't talk just saluted and then he realized he was told by the driver that was Mahatma Gandhi on one of his non-speaking days. (laughs) So yeah George Blaker, Sir Kelvin Spencer, Patrick Shackleton, uh, um, Dean of uh, Medical Science at uh, Southampton and Peter Leggett who was a wonderful great friend of mine, a fellow of Trinity College and um, Vice-Chancellor of Surrey University. So the, the whole point is the network doesn't have a, a guru or a doctrine, nor does the Theosophical Society, but it's very easy to make people into gurus. But the scientific medical network does not have that. So um, the, the whole aim of the uh, SMN, scientific medical network, is to challenge the adequacy of scientific materialism as an exclusive, important word, exclusive explanation for everything that goes on around us, to provide the safe space and to encourage a respect for Earth and for each other, because you cannot do this without mutual respect. So the methodology is to be open to observation, rigorous and critical in approach, responsible for maintaining high ethics, And most importantly, sensitive to a plurality of views. I'll say that again, sensitive to a plurality of views. Now, the second object of the Theosophical Society is to encourage the comparative study of science, religion and philosophy, plurality of views, just stated in different language.
1: I love that. So you're suggesting that there is a balance and harmony with the scientist's inner experience and the outer experience and what we are currently not defining but calling consciousness and the physical world. Yes. And that one isn't exclusive uh, without the other.
0: And harmony is not sweet sounds. Again, uh, using music, harmony is dissonance and consonance coming together it is the dissonance that drives the music forward dissonance does not mean discord uh, a chord that needs resolution that drives the music on mozart wrote the dissonance quartet one of his greatest quartets so harmony is that coming together of dissonance and consonance, plurality of different views not discord and you know something emmy I I thought I I thought of inserting a cheekily another word into new thinking aloud new thinking aloud aloud a l o u d
1: it's a play on words yeah and here we we love a plurality of views and we're so grateful to have your view on science yeah, and yeah. consciousness your your volume 1 that we've been discussing today is very rich and deep and Um, Is there anything else you want to share today about science and consciousness and the first volume of your really beautiful, momentous work?
0: The most important thing to realize is, or one of the many important things, is no piano teacher can do the practicing for the pianist. No athletics coach can do the running for the athlete no writer can do the thinking for the reader it has to be a bit of a diy do it yourself job so um, one has to work at it but uh, the the other point is always to be aware that uh, i'm quoting here from the light on the path that the soul of man and by man i mean the individual not male gender the soul of man is a thing whose splendor and growth has no limits. And the only limits are what we put on ourselves. So regard, I would say to each person, regard what you've been given as a unique gift, and I mean unique, and that is like a bud. And water that bud so that it flowers into beautiful petals. That is your life's mission. Whatever those petals are for you. Or if you don't like flowers and you're a mining engineer, you've been given a rough diamond. Always polish that diamond so that it reflects the best possibility in you and never stop doing it. There is no limit.
1: Great advice. And I love the analogy to a garden and a gem, a diamond, that. We need to water our garden. We can certainly forget to water it. We can put garbage on it versus rich, healthy compost. Uh, we can use a dirty polishing cloth versus a nice clean one. And so we need to be very careful with what we are using and how we are executing that.
0: For me, that is always exposing yourself. It's not only what goes into your mouth as food, what goes into your eyes and ears is more important. Always expose yourself to great music, great art, great literature, lofty sayings, tremendous literature. And that's the rich compost you talked about, Emmy.
1: Yes, we can all get such great inspiration from those sources and it can raise us to the heights of the energy and the vibration of what we are connecting with.
0: Thank you, Emmy. It's been a pleasure and an honor.
1: Eddie, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I'm so grateful and excited that I get to speak with you again for subsequent interviews on your Volumes 2 and 3. Eddie, thank you so much for being with me today.
0: Thank you, Emmy. See you very soon.
1: And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.
0: The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Allowed magazine was just released on March 1st. You can
1: download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Allowed Foundation website.